0: It's Thursday, June 3rd, from The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, which is called News Items. If you read it, you'll know just how often I cite the work of Robin Wigglesworth of the Financial Times. He reports on the biggest trends in finance and does so extraordinarily well. It was a pleasure speaking with him today, and I trust you'll find it a pleasure to listen to him. Welcome to the News Items Podcast. We're really pleased to have as our guest today, Robin Wigglesworth. Robin is the FT's global finance correspondent based in Oslo, Norway, which we're going to ask about shortly. He focuses on the biggest trends, reshaping markets, investing in finance more broadly across the world, with a particular focus on technological disruption and quantitative investing and writing long-form features, analyses, profiles, and columns. He is also, on top of all that, the author of the forthcoming book, Trillions. Robin, thank you very much for joining us today.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm honored.
0: Uh, I wanted to ask, I still don't think people understand how close we came in March 2020 to a, a real complete meltdown yes sometimes i think well maybe i'm exaggerating it you know the fed was there and so on and so forth but how bad was it
2: i think you're right i think it was exceptionally bad and worse than many people realize and frankly worse than what some people now pretend right right that it's easy to forget about bad memories whether it's march 2020 or, you know, the depths of the Eurozone crisis I covered for the Financial Times or the global financial crisis. Right. So it's kind of easier to not dwell on those bad memories, but, you know, it's important to remember this. So in March 2020, you know, we had the worst global public health crisis in at least a century since the Spanish flu. Because of the abrupt shutdown of the entire global economy, we by far had a sharper drop in economic activity than we've probably had ever in history. Right. I mean, this is quicker than the Great Depression and, and comparable in severity, just very quickly. And then, you know, you can't do that without basically it echoing through the entire financial system. There were good things that really came out of that. First, that actually some of the stuff we did after the global financial crisis to stiffen the sinews of the banking sector have worked. Right. The dog that didn't bark, as it were, in March 2020 was that there were no real major fears that we were going to suffer a banking crisis as well. But we were careening very quickly towards a financial crisis on top of an economic crisis and a public health crisis where, you know, mutual funds, mass gating of mutual funds, and money market funds getting shut so people can't get access to their money and so on. You know, then maybe that rippling through to companies not being able to make payroll because they have their money to make payroll and money market funds and so on. So there were a lot of other things in the non-bank part of the financial system that really got exposed in March, and I hope that we still will and hopefully should tackle in the coming years.
0: Another column you wrote recently was about a University of Arizona professor and the moonshot theory of investing. Would you walk our listeners through that?
2: So this is research done by a, a professor called Hendrik Bessenbinder at State University of Arizona, which is just absolutely fascinating. So we've long known that the returns in the stock markets are skewed in that a few companies account for a big chunk of the gains.
0: Right.
2: We've known this about individual investors as well. Like sometimes an investor can have nine terrible stock picks, but if he plays a blinder with a tenth one, then all is forgiven. One could argue even people like you know, Warren Buffett owes his career to having gotten in early on Geico back in the day alongside his mentor.
1: Right. And
2: Then once you have one big winner, that sustains you for a very long time. Right. But Henrik Bessenbinder showed quantitatively for the first time just how enormously skewed the returns are, where the vast majority of US stocks that have listed in the US stock market over the you know, past 100 years have returned less than treasury bills, have either lost money or returned less than just keeping your money in treasury bills. And only a few percent, I think 4,000 out of 50,000 companies account for all the net wealth created by the US stock market over the past century. And then he replicated that for the global stocks as well. The reason why people call him sort of the moonshot professor, as it were, is slightly unfair. And, you know, maybe I cause this to a certain extent, but his <laughs> research is a real Rorschach test. You know, for passive investing fans, his research shows how hard it is to find these stock market winners. So why try to find the needle when you just buy the entire haystack and you know you'll do fine? Right. But for people like Cathie Wood at ARK, Bailey Gifford, a very similar, very successful growth investor in the UK, you know, SoftBank in Japan as well, for that matter, Tiger Global, a big hedge fund. To varying degrees, they have, I think, internalized the lessons that actually you spray money at uh, a lot of very disruptive, long-shot companies, and you accept that some of them are not going to work out because the few that will could become such mega returners that it just swamps everything. So how much he should be interpreted to speak for either side of this very contentious debate is questionable he himself just does not want to take his side but i've seen people on both sides claim him for their own as it were
0: you also did a piece recently about a major shift as momentum and value collide i wondered if you would walk our listeners through that column because i thought it was particularly interesting
2: Yes, that one seemed to resonate. It was interesting. So I'm a massive nerd, and I always wanted to be a physicist, but I wasn't really smart enough to be anything other than a mediocre physicist. But maybe that's why I gravitated towards financial journalism. And in finance, you know, there's been this movement to try to turn it into science. And one of the ways of doing so has been sorting the stock market, not into industries or geographies like utilities or energy or banks, but through factors, basically the economic and financial characteristics of these companies, of stocks. Now, it's just one approach, but it is definitely gaining in ascendance as a more Multicolored way of looking at the world rather than if you think of looking at the world through industries that's black and white if you do it through factors as well you get a bit more color in your image. So the main factors that people boil this down to is size. It boils down to small companies tend to do better than big companies in the long run. Value, cheap companies tend to do better than expensive companies in the long run. Quality, which is companies are well fortified balance sheets, lots of cash very steady margins, they tend to do well over time, and momentum, that oddly enough, and you know, this is one of the more controversial factors, but companies that are going up a lot tend to continue to go up a lot, and companies that are falling tend to fall a lot more. And by harnessing these factors, you can, in theory, and it has work in practice in the long run at least, generate above market gains by just for example systematically buying small companies and avoiding big companies or just buying cheap companies rather than expensive companies so value and momentum are typically the yin and yang of factors they are in opposition right. because obviously you can't be a cheap company for long because if you keep rising because you're a momentum stock then you're no longer cheap right so they typically work as different factors so if you're an investor you want a balanced approach you might actually buy a bit of a momentum factor, and the value factor. And then you'll have a sort of balanced countervailing portfolio. So a good example of a value stock is ExxonMobil. Energy stocks have been out of favor for a long time, and ExxonMobil is a great example of that. It's been cheap for a long time. A great example of a momentum stock is Tesla. Now, Elon Musk's carmaker has been on fire for several years now. What is unusual now is that value has gone through an absolutely horrific decade. Value has these periods where it does badly. Most famous is the dot-com period, where obviously everybody wanted sexy tech stocks, and value companies, boring, staid value companies, did badly. But value, after the financial crisis, had its worst run in at least 200 years. Both in length and severity, this was just an absolute nightmare. You know, even Warren Buffett has done badly lately because of the struggles of value stocks. Right. But since we got the vaccines in November 2020, people think this is great for value. All these left for dead companies are going to do fantastic. Well, the so value stocks have rallied hard and are now becoming momentum stocks. <laughs> now, this doesn't actually happen very often. This is like, you know, the stars and moons aligning. This is an eclipse. And it won't always last for long. It's only happened, I think, four or five times over the past couple of decades. But it might last for a little bit longer now because value has been so terrible for so long that those stocks can actually be momentum stocks for way longer than they have been in the past because they're so cheap. It will take a long time before they ever become expensive.
0: I wanted to ask you, one of my sort of obsessions is that private equity, you know, is just billions and billions and billions of dollars raised and too few deals. So too much money, too few deals. And I'm part of, a, I'm a member, I guess, of a group called Brain Science that Meets at MIT in the spring and in Stanford in the fall, obviously disrupted by the pandemic. Started by Reed Hoffman, all these brain scientists come and talk about their work, and it's a fabulously interesting group. And the one at MIT, the most recent one I went to at MIT, which I guess was 2019, I walked around Central Square, which is where MIT is in in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it was transformed i grew up in boston and it's just transformed from my youth I and mean, the streets basically paved with gold and it sort of made me think like is this silicon valley for life sciences essentially and why isn't private equity all over this and i wonder if that series of questions is correct or where do you think life sciences is in relation to private equity as opposed to venture capital
2: it's a great question. I, I know the private equity industry a little bit better than the VC industry, but broadly speaking, I suspect it has to do with return assumptions and risk tolerance. Right. The venture capital industry is set up to varying degrees to invest in very risky companies. Right. You know, you only need one really massive success in a portfolio of 10. Private equity does not think that way. They can suffer one deal going bad but not two or three. So it's just an entirely different assumption. And also private equity tends to be a little bit more price sensitive, like a venture capital firm has seen many times that could you've paid too much to invest in Facebook (laughs) when it was private? No, we couldn't. Right. Right. I mean, there's literally people thought some of the funding rounds, there were crazy, but you know, in private equity, The value you can extract is directly linked to how much money you pay. And the private equity industry, the history of acquisitions in general, is littered with the corpses of terrible deals.
0: (laughs) Yes, indeed.
2: So I think, especially in life sciences, it's just an industry that just leans more towards being attracted to VC than private equity. But I suspect we'll definitely see way more deals in that area. Like you say, the private equity industry has raised billions and billions of dollars that they seem to struggle to allocate at the moment. And a lot of these life sciences and somewhat riskier companies are actually becoming reasonably mature now. And there is a natural point where a venture capital firm should and wants to hand off the company from their hands to the public markets or a private equity owner. Right. And I suspect we'll see more of that because clearly life sciences, you know, even before the pandemic was in hot area. I think now I think there's going to be a lot of interesting developments in that space.
0: One thing that's emerging here is the beginning of a very sharp backlash against private equity practices, I guess you would say. There was a piece in The New Yorker recently about private equity jacking up the cost of trailer parks and We, in the town I live in, in Fairfield, Connecticut, they're buying up homes to be rehab centers and sort of steamrolled, you know, the local town council and stuff. And people were really, really upset about it. Anti-Carlyle billboards and, you know, posters all over the town. And this is a town that, you know, would be favorable to financial institutions and investment operations. Do you see a political backlash to private equity around the world? Do you see it in the US? Do you see it in the UK? Do you see it at all or not?
2: No, it's a huge topic that I almost feel should be even bigger than it is.
0: That's what I think.
2: (laughs) I try not to be too moralistic about things that happen in finance because, you know, (laughs) I feel the world is very long on outrage and short of fact and analysis. So nobody can be entirely objective. I do try to sort of take my emotions out of it. But the private equity industry, at the very least, has a massive public relations issue. And in practice, you know, every industry has bad actors. Journalism has got tons of terrible journalists, banking, finance, private equity. There are bad actors there that have done bad things. Sometimes a private equity firm might get blamed for something bad that would have happened anyway. And you can't right. really see the counterfactual that maybe this company, rather than them private equity coming in and sacking half the workers, if the private equity firm hadn't come in, they'd all be out of a job.
0: Right. So you That's don't always argument, see
2: that right. side of things. Right. But I think there are issues here. And I think they're particularly acute in the US for you know some niche tax reasons as well. <laughs> but in the UK, in Germany, I think it was in 05, that a German politician first called private equity, a bunch of locusts Hmm. for picking at the middle stand of Germany. And in the UK, there's been a lot of sensitivity around this post-Brexit, where the pound fell. And obviously, a lot of businesses were weak after Brexit. And then the pandemic hit that there's been a backlash against private equity firms buying right. pedigreed old English companies on the cheap.
1: Right.
2: That side of things, I have to admit, like I don't care if a chocolate maker in Norway or Britain is owned by a local Norwegian or not, really. I just care if it's well-run for the community and creates jobs and prosperity for the ma- optimal amount of people. So there is an element of, frankly, economic nationalism that you know, can veer into distasteful areas. But is there a real case to answer that private equity does not necessarily help economic growth? Probably, yes. It might help economic dynamism, but I think you know the lessons of the past 10, 20, 30 years is that there is a trade-off between prosperity and dynamism. And maybe we've erred too much in the side of dynamism over some inclusive capitalism, as people like to call it these days.
0: We're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back with Robin Wigglesworth. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn
1: users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today.
0: I wanted to finish up with your tweet this morning. I think it was this morning in which you said I've read a lot of financial history books on bubbles and manias. There have been some great ones over the centuries, but merely reading about it after the fact doesn't prepare you for just how stupendously stupid they are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how stupendously stupid are we? Do you suppose?
2: That's hard to say. I mean, it's—I always say that picking my favorite bubble or stock market insanity is like picking your favorite child. <laughs> They're all. Just beautiful in their own unique way. Right. I mean, one of my favorites was there was a sardine mania in Monterey many years ago. I can't remember exactly when. It's recounted in Seth Klarman's book, The Margin of Safety, which is a classic in the field, where you know people start trading sardine, little boxes of sardine, and the prices skyrocket. And then one guy to celebrate a really good sardine deal actually opens a box and eats them, and they're rotten. Right. And he turns to the seller and says, look, dude, these are rotten sardines. You sold me rotten sardines. And the guy turns to him and said, look, you idiot, these aren't eating sardines. They're trading sardines, <laughs> which is just a great metaphor for how sometimes you know the price of an asset, whether it's stamps, sardines, stocks, bonds, art, whatever, can get completely divorced from any sort of realistic view of what that might be. And I think we are in one of those moments. Now, this mania could go on for a lot longer. Let's say I'm weary of calling it a bubble, because I think bubble is an overused word. Bubbles means a lot of leverage, and things are going to c- collapse immediately. And I actually right. think this could go on for two days, two years, 20 years longer. I, I, I don't know. I, smarter people than me screw this up all the time. But I do feel very confident that this is a mania that we are right now in the middle of a mania moment that might deflate naturally at some point. But there is so many idiotic things going on. I mean, the trigger for that tweet was Elon Musk talking about the song Baby Shark on Twitter because he's got a baby. And unfortunately, I've also got young children and know how kids love that very addictive, annoying song, Baby Shark. Right, but literally right. him tweeting about it sent the shares of Samsung, which owns, A small stake in the songmaker up by 8%. Now, that is by any measure completely insane, stupendously Uh, stupid. And unfortunately, that is not an isolated example of the stupendous stupidity we see in markets all the time these days. Uh,
0: My indicator is Time Warner or Warner Media, which, you know, if it's being bought or sold or, you know, (laughs) dumped or whatever, then we're in the middle of something. Dicey, at least. But I think you know one of the points that's been made to me by you know people in the private equity industry is you know it it may not be a bubble. It may just go on. And one person said to me, "The Fed can't raise rates because if they do, so many dominoes tip over that they just have to cut the rates again and provide as much quote quantitative easing as, as is needed to keep the whole house of cards up." I don't know if that's true or not, but it does strike me that if the Fed begins to tighten, we'll have another taper tantrum, and that will you know, reverberate all the way into emerging markets, and that ricochets back. Then I don't know how they get out of it. I really don't.
2: Yeah, I think the, the nuance, I guess, is can the Fed tighten? I think yes. Can they tighten a lot? No. No. I think we, we all suffer from you know, an anchoring effect of when we grew up. I grew up in Norway in the 80s, when inflation was crazy high and interest rates were crazy high. So we think that was almost normal. When actually, if you look at the grand scheme of history, the 60s, 70s, 80s in stagflation we had then was unusual.
0: Right.
2: So I do think that given the levels of debt around the world, you know, we're not going to see interest rates go up that high. In fact, we don't need to. The people raise interest rates to cool economic growth. And we don't want them to have to raise interest rates to 10% to call economic growth. Right. If the Fed started you know, tapering now, I mean, they've already started talking about it. Yes, But I agree that one of the reasons why I'm aware of calling this a bubble is that I don't think interest rates are going back to where they were 15 years ago for the next generation, potentially. Right. That we'll be bumbling along between 0 and 3 4%. For a very long time for all sorts of structural demographic reasons as well frankly the baby boomers are retiring technology is a vastly deflationary force the world is still global despite the efforts towards economic nationalization so i think there are a lot of secular forces that keep interest rates and inflation pinned down for a while that we might have cyclical bounces either way but yes if the fed raises interest rates a lot then I'll have a really interesting job covering the fallout.
0: Uh, You're also, aside from doing your regular work for the Financial Times, you've written a book called Trillions, um, which is going to be out when? Uh,
2: Mid-October.
0: Mid-October. So my advance copy will not be coming anytime soon. Tell us about the book.
2: No, the publisher is guarding it like an advance copy of the State of the Union speech, Yeah. so it it boils down to frankly the index funds they sound really boring because it's the boring safe choice that people are told to stick to you know put your money in an index fund but my argument my feeling is that this is genuinely one of the most enormously impactful financial revolutions we've seen for a very long time certainly over the past half century arguably for the past century this is now you know just the public side that we know about is a 50 trillion dollar industry that is vastly bigger than the entire venture capital industry the entire hedge fund industry and the entire private equity industry all put together mm. and that's just the public side if you include you know various sovereign wealth funds and pension funds will do this in house without actually paying for a, a fund you know we're talking probably 25 trillion dollars
0: wow
2: that's a mammoth amount of money that is we rewiring swaths of markets and how finance operates so for me i felt this was a story that wasn't really told by a lot of people because you know the, the focus is naturally on the sort of the titanic people of finance the, the hedge fund managers the private equity tycoons The index fund just seems dowdy, but in fact, it is the most important development we've seen in markets for the past half century.
0: And with that, I think we'll let you go. Thank you very, very much, Robin, for taking the time to talk with us. And we hope to have you back shortly before Trillions is released. I look forward to reading it.
2: Hi, John. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. And tomorrow in this feed, we'll have the full, unedited version of this interview with Robin Wigglesworth. In that take, we also discuss Norway's upcoming elections, given that Robin is stationed in Oslo, as well as Robin's trajectory into work as a journalist. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer... With Simran Singh. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers.